Radio. This is Kevin Barrett bringing you fascinating interviews on a regular basis with the best guests who have the most to say about what's really going on in the world, all the things that you're not supposed to know, apparently. And uh, there are more and more critically important issues that are utterly covered up or misreported. It seems to be getting worse all the time. And I think the best way to peel back the illusion and take a look at the reality in these areas is to identify the uh, key places where the official version just completely falls apart. And anybody who takes a serious look at it can see that. And one of those areas is the anthrax case, or should we say the anthrax component of the 9-11 operation, because that's basically what it appears to be. Uh, especially in light of this great new book by Professor Graham McQueen. Professor McQueen uh, teaches Buddhist studies. He's done work in a whole lot of areas, and his brand-new book is called The 2001 Anthrax Deception, The Case for a Domestic Conspiracy. And uh, it looks like an airtight case to me. What do you think, Graham? Absolutely airtight, Kevin. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I I have no special interest in saying that, of course. (laughs) <laughs> right, right. It's uh, it's interesting that they've you know, the, the authorities, the media, the established institutions all admit that the anthrax case was a false flag, uh, apparently designed to incriminate Muslims um, by a domestic germ warfare scientist. But they haven't quite connected the dots. They haven't quite got the right scientist or scientists, and they haven't quite gone all the way to the top where it appears that this thing was part of the 9-11 operation. I think your book really fills in the blanks here. Um, I'm not sure where to start. There's so much great information in this book, including some stuff that was new to me. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe we could, we could sort of set the stage by doing the run-up to anthrax. Even before 9-11, there yeah. was... Uh, there was a very interesting bioterror exercise uh, and other events that you have found to be related to the anthrax attacks. Right. Yeah. Well, one of the uh, one of the giveaways about the anthrax attacks is the extent of the foreknowledge of these attacks. Uh, now, the most dramatic and clear foreknowledge occurs between 9/11 and the identification of the first victim. Uh, who was diagnosed on October 3rd. Between that point, uh, those two points, sorry, uh, nobody is supposed to have known, except the perpetrators, that anthrax was in the works. That is, there were letters with anthrax sent out somewhere around, well, postmarked September 18th. But nobody's supposed to have known about those letters as they made their way through the mail and so on. Um, and yet there was tremendous amount of knowledge. It was run on the, anti- the antibiotic used for anthrax and so on. So I try and uh, sort through that foreknowledge. But what you're asking about now is, in a way, even more interesting, and that is the indications even before 9-11 that you know, bioterrorism was going to be a big issue soon and that Americans might be struck by anthrax. And, of course, this was all presented to us as really good intelligence, state-of-the-art intelligence from the U.S. intelligence community, which was, you know, reliably and patriotically passed on to the public by the news media. And so, in other words, everyone was supposed to be worried about it for valid reasons. 
Uh, as it turned out, of course, none of those reasons were valid. It wasn't accurate intelligence. It wasn't accurately passed on. Um, it was all fabrication. And that means that it's it's very fishy. <laughs> <You know, in laughs> That's one words, way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, like who was transmitting all these uh, all this misinformation, this disinformation um, in advance. Now, you, you made reference to an exercise that occurred before 9-11. This is one example. It's one of the more dramatic examples. It was an exercise called Dark Winter, and it took place in June. So less than three months, I guess it was, before, about three months before the, anthra the actual anthrax attacks happened. Here we have um, a military exercise, training exercise, in which various players are, are going to simulate a bio-terrorist uh, attack on the United States, one involving mainly smallpox, though the exercise also included threats of anthrax. And, you know, so I look at that dark winter exercise in sufficient detail to try and, you know, it's not a major focus of the book, but it's an example of something that's very peculiar that's happening a few months before 9-11. Um, here we have an exercise in which uh, it's gradually revealed as the exercise goes on that bin Laden may be involved. Um, uh, and, and then it's gradually revealed that bin Laden couldn't have, you know, this sophisticated bioterrorist material on his own. How would he be able to develop it? And so there must be a state behind him somewhere. He's got a state sponsor. Then, then there's a list of possible state sponsors. And then by the end of the exercise, it's narrowed down to Iraq. So by the end of this exercise in June, we're told that a major, you know, in the training exercise, that is, major bioterrorist attack happens in the United States, causing huge numbers of deaths. It's done by a double perpetrator. Al-Qaeda, well, it's not called Al-Qaeda, I don't believe in the exercise, but it's, Bin Laden's name is given, and it's called a terrorist group based in Afghanistan, and that that is supported by Iraq, and that's who's done it, now we know. And then, of course, there are all other, all kinds of other parallels as well, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and, well, and, and that's exactly what happened with anthrax. Is exactly. They tried to blame it on this double perpetrator, Al-Qaeda plus Iraq, um, and in fact, from Richard Clark, I don't think he mentioned that in the book, but the five, uh, seven countries in five years targeted for regime change after 9-11, right. uh, it, it seems that that was also part of this double perpetrator plan. Wolfowitz and his people were all trying to say that it was al-Qaeda plus Iraq. Yes, that's right. And thanks for mentioning that, because, of course, people know in general very little about the anthrax attacks now. They've been kind of hurried down the memory hole. So people may have a vague idea that some U.S. scientist was eventually found guilty of the crime, but they, they often forget that this double perpetrator, that is to say al-Qaeda and Iraq, were strenuously uh, blamed for the anthrax attacks when they first happened. And that was a lot of the work done in October by, US, uh, by the U.S. executive was really um, meant to do that. It was meant to, to tell us that's who did it. And, and of course, that's setting, setting things up for an, an attack on Afghanistan, followed by an attack on Iraq, both of which happened. So, you know, 
In the book, I was really careful not to immediately start talking about Bruce Ivins. That's the FBI's current uh, choice as anthrax perpetrator. You can get bogged down in that. Um, I mean, I don't think Ivins had anything to do with it, and I give reasons for that. But we have to remember that Ivins was nowhere on the scene uh, except for uh, offering to help, you know, because he was an anthrax specialist. But, I mean, he wasn't accused for years. In the, in the immediate, um, at the time of the attacks, it was al-Qaeda in Iraq. Very interesting stuff. And so, so basically the real anthrax attacks, in many respects, perfectly mimicked this bioterror exercise, Dark Winter, that ran three months earlier. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and when you, when you begin, you know, and initially you might say, oh well, you know, I mean that's that's the point of an exercise. It uses the very best um, U.S. intelligence. We're talking about a U.S. exercise, and it tries to create plausible scenarios and so on. But of course, now we know that it wasn't valid intelligence. Iraq had no anthrax. Al Qaeda had no access to anthrax. They did not work together in any case, and so on. So it was it was all fiction. And it was um, the same fiction then, in other words, is, is pushed on people in June in, in the uh, fake, in the simulated attacks. And then a few months later in the actual anthrax, the same fiction comes forward. And that, you know, the more I looked at that, the more I began uh, what I call it as vertigo in the book. You get a feeling of vertigo. You, you, you lose your bearings. You start asking, is it? really a case of a simulation and then reality, or is the line between simulation and reality being blurred so much that it becomes difficult to know one where one leaves off and the other begins? Mm-hmm. And another reason I say that is because in this exercise in June, as I say in the book, several of the people participating in the simulation were later crucial in the actual attacks. And um, so, you know, shades of the uh, pilot who allegedly flew the plane into the Pentagon, having run a drill simulating flying a plane into the Pentagon one year earlier. Yes. Yeah. We we really (laughs) can't make this stuff up. No, no, you couldn't. We really need to think about it. I mean, I I was sufficiently interested in that that I gave a paper at the at an annual meeting of the Peace and Justice Studies Association, which is basically an academic uh, peace studies association. I gave it on the talk, I don't remember, a year ago or something, on the issue, you know, of really what is a simulation? Were the anthrax attacks themselves an example of a kind of simulation, a lethal simulation? Mm -hmm. And that 9-11 itself was, too. Well, exactly. I mean, they're a little bit like, I guess, a snuff film in which I've never watched it, I never intend to, but apparently real people are killed as part of a film, well, is that is that a you know what is that? Is that a film? Is that and 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 so I've often wondered whether 9/11 and the anthrax attacks are kind of a snuff film. They're they're certainly lethal. They're yeah, and you know I, I think there's a reason why they do this uh, and blur the lines between reality and fiction in this way. That's that's maybe not quite so apparent at first glance, which is that uh, this is a way of inducing learned helplessness by uh, confusing uh, illusion and reality or confusing fiction and reality. And, in fact, uh, there's that great book, Coercion, by Douglas Rushkoff, which goes into the fact that all mind control is based on the same process, which is disorienting the subject and then regressing the subject 
to an infantile state and then stepping in as the substitute parent figure or authority figure. And that process of disorientation, Reshkoff explains, right. often involves blurring the lines between uh, imagination and reality. A classic example he gives is the car salesman who takes you for a drive, and mm-hmm. he looks at you very carefully, and just when you have sort of a little bit of a space-out moment, he pops the question, <laughs> is this the kind of car you can see yourself driving? And, of course, you are actually driving the car. And right. he's asking if you can imagine yourself driving the car that you actually, in reality, are driving. And that right. causes the eyes to glaze over. As car salesmen all know that there's a serious chance of an accident at that moment. <laughs> and then he takes over and becomes your substitute parent figures. Okay, I could, let's, let's do it. Drive back to, he drives you back to the dealership, serves coffee, doesn't ask whether you want coffee. He says, do you take your coffee black or, you know, or with cream right. or whatever? And, and just takes over and you walk out with a car not knowing why you bought it. And so I I think that they're inducing learned helplessness by consciously engineering these events that blur fiction and reality. And even in the truth movement, we're getting disinformation from uh, the same kind of sources that are blurring the truth about these conspiracies with uh, various fictional forms. Yeah, well, that's that's very plausible to me. So thanks for for raising that. Certainly the whole issue of authority and parental figures and so on – forces itself upon us again and again when we look at 9-11 and the anthrax attacks. I made no attempt to do an analysis of that sort, but but you'll see it implied in the book. In other words, you know, um, the whole idea of the unthinkable. Um, the the anthrax attacks are, are called unthinkable. We're you and I are, are not supposed to think about them. It's beyond our ability to imagine. It's only the neocons are allowed to think think the unthinkable. Exactly. <laughs> and so and so you know you're you as an American citizen are supposed to throw yourselves into the arms of the executive, of the U.S. Um, government. In that case, George W. Bush, Cheney, and the various the, the cloud of neocons. Some of them in government, some of them out of government that surrounded them, you know, that these are the people that will take care of you. They will drop nuclear bombs on dangerous Muslims if necessary. You don't have to worry about that. They will take care of, you know, bioweapons by setting up elaborate defenses against it and so on and so forth. So there is that, certainly, that infanta, well, Infantilization. That was wasn't that what yeah. Susan Sontag called it? She took all kinds of heat right after nine eleven. She said they've infantilized us, and yeah. all of the usual suspects just ganged up on her. Interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. But that's definitely part of what's going on in the fall of two thousand and one, and it's the infantilized and intimidated citizen, as well as the intimidated members of Congress who passed the Patriot Act. And again, as I looked into that, I, I knew that, you know, in general, the anthrax attacks had been supposedly used to pass the Patriot Act. But it wasn't until I forced myself to sit down and look at it in detail that I saw how astonishing it all was. You know, members of Congress being warned not to identify themselves as members of Congress. They might get killed. Couldn't wear their little congressional pin. Couldn't wear their – couldn't were supposed to not use their special license plates. Um, so they're all, you know, kind of hiding around. Uh, they flee town, the House of Representatives, at one point after an anthrax scare. They're very systematically deliberate. Uh, sorry, um, what was the word? Um, well, deceived and intimidated um, during that period, just when the Patriot Act is coming before them. 
you know, and the FBI issues this the biggest warning since 9/11 on the very day that you know the Senate is going to be considering the Patriot Act, and that evening, late in that evening, they pass it. So, I mean, there's just one thing after another. You have to have the patience to go through the timeline to see it, but mm-hmm. um, but it seems to me really clear. So your book does a great job of, of following that timeline, and in particular, making the case even stronger that the anthrax attacks, in particular, the letters sent to Tom Daschle and Patrick Leahy, were clearly part of an operation to force the Patriot Act through Congress. Yeah, maybe you could go over some of those details about you know who Daschle and Leahy were <laughs> and the timeline, because it's it is astonishing how obvious this is. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I was thinking about today, and I thought, well, gee, you know, I, I can't give a lot of, con- you know, specific dates because, you know, people listening to this won't remember them and they'll get confused. But I'll, I'll kind of go through some of the high points here, and you can guide me as to at what point I'm getting <laughs> too detailed. Um, first, the first question I had, and you have to remember, I'm coming at this as somebody who doesn't pretend to any expertise in um, the U.S. Senate and Congress. Um, I'm a Canadian, for one thing. So I thought to myself, okay, I, I heard that Leahy and Daschle were were targeted with anthrax. Why Leahy and Daschle? I mean, obviously, they're Democrats, and you have a Republican government that, you know, and high members of it want to uh, get this bill through. But So the first thing you have to realize is that there was no point intimidating the House of Representatives because the Republicans had a big majority there, and if they wanted the Patriot Act to go through there, it was going to go through. But the Senate, uh, in the Senate, the Democrats had a majority of one, and in theory could have blocked the whole thing because it needed to be passed by both Senate and House of Representatives. So getting the Senate, the Democratic uh, Senate, to accept the Patriot Act was, was going to be a challenge. And there were two Democratic senators that were potentially in a good position to block this. Um, so Tom Daschle, the Senate Majority Leader, and the Majority Leader has a very powerful position. Uh, he or she, you know, is expected to set a timeline for the debate of the bill. Uh, <clears throat> is expected not to be too partisan, so he or she is supposed to consult with uh, the other party, the minority party, and with the government, and all this kind of and the the Senate Majority Leader, Daschle, therefore has a lot of power, a lot of power potentially. So that's Tom Daschle. Um, and then Patrick Leahy was the chair of the Senate Judicial Committee, which is one of several committees that would be expected to look at a new bill like the Patriot Act, but arguably the most important uh, because it's the committee that looks at any bill that um, influences or has implications for the human rights of uh, and the civil rights of uh, U.S. citizens, which obviously this one did, has all kind of being spied upon and everything else. So, um, so you know, Dasho and Leahy both took their job seriously. Now, that doesn't mean, as I say in the book, that they were, you know, kind of radically opposed to the Patriot Act and were standing up and doing all kinds of, you know, obstreperous things. They weren't. They they actually were successfully fooled um, by 9-11 and the anthrax attacks initially, uh, although ultimately Leahy said he doesn't believe the FBI solution. 
but at the time they were, and they said they support the need for a Patriot Act, they support the need to have it passed quickly, and in fact they seemed so supportive and so directly implicated in the whole process that for a while I was confused, and, and my initial draft of the book actually didn't say much about this, because I thought, who would need to send anthrax letters to these two senators? They were completely on board. Why would you need to intimidate them? But then as I looked more closely, I saw that wasn't really true, that Leahy especially uh, said, wait a minute, you know, we're going to pass this, but I'm not just going to rubber stamp it. You know, it's got to take its time. It's got to go through my committee. Um, we have to make sure that we've got you know, our ducks in a row here. We don't want to shred the Constitution. That's the expression he used. He said, if we shred the Constitution, the terrorists win. So he was slowing down the process a little and it was actually him more than Dashiell. He was slowing it down, um, and he was arguing with Ashcroft and saying, you know, sorry, but that's not what you promised me. Um, you know, we made, an, we made an agreement, and now you've broken it, because they consulted almost daily. Uh, Ashcroft, the head of the Department of Justice, who's pushing the Patriot Act like mad, and Leahy, who's, who he has, to, he has to debate with, he has to... Um, compromise with, they're, they're consulting all the time, and Leahy puts his foot down at one, at one point. And it comes to a head on October the 2nd of 2001, where Leahy says, wait a minute, I'm, we're going to have to put a stop on this. This is not going to go through as quickly as you thought, because um, I don't like what's happening. And on the same day, October 2nd, his colleague, Senate Majority Leader, uh, leader Dashiell supports Leahy, and he says, yes, you know, that's clear. Uh, we, need, we need to do more work on this. And the reason this is really significant is because it's on that day, October 2nd, when they put their foot down, that it becomes clear that a particular deadline is not going to be met. And this is the deadline of October 5th, which Dick Cheney had set. Dick Cheney said he made it really clear he wanted this legislation passed October 5th. You, know, you, you don't want to mess with Cheney in these situations. Uh, no, that's what really... Paul Wellstone found that out to his uh, uh, serious <laughs> misfortune a few years later when yeah. Cheney gave him that order to stop what you're doing or there's going to, there will be the most serious consequences for the state of Minnesota and for you personally. And what, 10 days later, uh, Wellstone, his wife, his daughter, and his campaign staff are murdered in a rigged plane crash. Yeah. Well, yeah. And... Uh... And Dashiell, of course, was a close friend of Wellstone, and he says, Dashiell says in his autobiography, and I, I must say between you and me, I have no idea what's really going on in the head of, of, of the people in Congress. I have no idea, because Dashiell makes a little comment to the effect of that Wellstone's death was creepy or spooky or something like that. Mm. Well, spell it out, Tom. Well, I, I wish mean, he would, but you know why he won't. Barbara, have you heard about Barbara Boxer's uh, statement about that? I don't believe so. Yeah, yeah. She, uh, the book American Assassination, The Strange Death of Paul Wellstone was co-authored by Four Arrows, who has a close friend who works on Barbara Boxer's staff. Well, okay. after that book came out, uh, Boxer said to uh, the friend of Four Arrows, her staff member, uh, tell your friend Four Arrows, who's just written this book saying that you know, Cheney killed Wellstone, that he doesn't know how right he is. Right. Um, but she added that this is private, and if you state publicly uh, what I just said, I will deny having said it. Uh, she, and she said, Wellstone's murder was, quote, a message to us all. That is yeah, a message okay. to Congress. 
Well, that makes perfect sense to me um, and uh, makes sense of, of Daschle's comment and the rest of it. I don't know how they can remain uh, members of Congress knowing such things or whether they go by and most of the day kind of denying it to themselves. I mean, it's true. We, it must be a depressing job. <laughs> it, must be, it must be horrible. I mean, I mean, we all at various times, I guess, in our life deny certain things. It's part of how the human psyche works. And maybe, you know, these guys are so busy at playing the game and getting elected and making deals that they're able to push this to the back of their consciousness most of the time. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just putting this out there. But in any case, yeah. So, um, so, so Cheney sets the deadline of October 5th. This is when I want this passed. On October 2nd, in the Washington Post, it said very explicitly. Leahy and Daschle, and they're the only senator, you know, Democratic senators mentioned. It's not like there's a whole bunch of Leahy and Daschle have decided, you know, to hold up the legislation, and therefore it looks like Cheney's deadline deadline won't be met. So the deadline goes by October 5th. The legislation isn't passed, and somewhere between October 6th and 9th, two anthrax letters are put in the mail: one for Daschle and one for Leahy. I mean, that's that's the kind of timeline we're talking about here. You know, if somebody gives you that kind of deadline and you make sure it isn't met, you're in trouble. And so these this highly lethal anthrax uh, goes out to these two senators. And, you know, Dashels is opened on October 15th. Again, more coincidences. Um, Washington newspaper roll call, which reports what happens on Capitol Hill, has a big headline. <laughs> October 15th, anthrax threat, uh, or Hill braces for anthrax threat. Later the same day, Dashiell receives the anthrax. <laughs> they sure did brace at the right time, didn't they? Yeah, they, they did. I mean, and you get used to these so-called coincidences when you're studying the anthrax attacks, they're all over the place. Um, and uh, so obviously I don't think it is a coincidence. I think that we're all being forced again into this absurd position where we're supposed to turn off that ability in our mind that, that recognizes patterns. And we're supposed to turn it off. We, we just accept anything as a coincidence. Um, you know, the very day, the, as close as we can tell, that the anthrax letters are being put in the mail, there's an article in the Washington Post saying, oh, gee, anthrax is a big threat, you know. Um, we have to worry about this. This is, you know, mid-September. And, uh, and, and gee, you know, if, if the spores were dispersed somewhere, we might not know for a while because it would just give people flu-like symptoms and they wouldn't diagnose it properly. Of course, all that's happening. They're being put in the mail. People uh, within the next week or two, various people begin getting cutaneous anthrax and later pulmonary. Um, the symptoms are not recognized. It is not immediately diagnosed. It's all happening together. We're supposed to believe that's all coincidence, you and I. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, this reminds me, this, this particular coincidence of the Washington Post uh, saying Congress braces for anthrax just as the first letter is arriving. It reminds me of that amazing interview footage from the uh, JFK's last uh, press conference, I believe, or speech he did in Dallas before he got in the motorcade, uh, in which the TV correspondent, I believe it's TV, is 
saying something like, uh, the, and the president has just finished his speech. As you can see, he has no protection. It would be incredibly easy for a lone nut to assassinate him. Uh, really? <laughs> yeah, that, that's in this uh, terrific uh, compilation of found footage of this sort of thing. It's called Evidence of Revision. Um, it's, it's just mind-boggling. These people... That, they, one, uh, that one I have missed, so please send it to me. Sure, okay. Or else <clears throat> you can just look for Evidence of Revision. I believe it's in the first of many uh, episodes of that compilation. Okay. Well, there's, um, <clears throat> there's lots of examples <clears throat> in the JFK thing where, um, <clears throat> excuse me, we're supposed to um, accept things as coincidence. And one of them I had missed till uh, I was reading, uh, I guess it was Mark Lane's Rush to Judgment the other day. Maybe it was one of the other ones, Weisberg or Sylvia Marr. It was one of those. And um, and he pointed this out. So I looked, because I saved on my uh, computer somewhere the, the uh, assassination of Oswald. But I had never noticed this before, that uh, there's a, car in the basement of the, the building that Oswald has, has been in. Um, you can't see it, but you hear a loud honk of the horn as Oswald makes his appearance. Now, meanwhile, meanwhile, Jack Ruby is standing with his gun un, unseen off to one side. So the, a loud honk takes place as Oswald, um, well, I guess it's as he comes down in the elevator. Uh, and then just before Ruby rushes forward, there's another honk. <laughs> honk. <laughs> <laughs> right. Ruby comes forward and kills the alleged assassination of the president in the presence of over 70 Dallas police officers, um, many of whom, most of whom, knew Jack Ruby well. I mean, and so again. Okay, because he was, he was the mob conduit to the corrupt officers of the force. Yeah, he was. He allegedly was a hitman. He was a terrible guy. He was also apparently connected to uh, U.S. foreign or CIA, involved in gun running to the anti-Cuban, uh, sorry, anti-Castro Cuban community. And he was just a very interesting figure. But anyway, the point is, we're supposed to not notice any of that. And of course, you and I are, are stereotyped as conspiracy theorists, and one of the things that's supposed to mean is that we see patterns where there is no pattern. Right. So, 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 when, so when the notorious hitman who runs the mob wing of the Dallas PD steps through a sea of Dallas police officers with his gun drawn, gets no opposition, and shoots dead the right. alleged lone nut who just killed the president on live television, Right. Anybody who even notices that this has happened is uh, a crazy conspiracy theorist. That's right. And I noticed on a TV program the other day, there's, you know, this this is a uh, this theme that keeps coming up. Oh, well, you know, those people who think that Lee Harvey Oswald didn't do this or didn't do that, those people who, you know, and they'll use terms like grassy knoll <clears throat> to evoke that. Um, you and I are, are grassy knoll people. Well, I am a grassy knoll person. Well, the grassy knoll people are the reality-based community, as is, is Carl Rove That's right. It. <laughs> I mean, if there's 40 perfectly sane people at the scene, and there's actually more than 40, who clearly say they thought the shot came from west of the Texas School Book Depository, meaning in all likelihood the grassy knoll, then <clears throat> you're insane, basically, as a researcher if you ignore that. Yeah, and, and the thing is, when they do these these over-the-top,
crazy covert op deception operations, uh, they, they're often not particularly smooth about it. And your book has plenty of examples of this. I mean, yeah. I, I, think, I think Ruby shooting Oswald was, was pretty you know, obvious. I mean, talk about not being a smooth operation, yeah. having to do that, you know. Yeah. But, but, you know, for example, you talk about the way, this, uh, the way the anthrax letters had scrawled on the envelopes, death to America, death to Israel, uh, Allah is great. Yeah, uh, and and these other like you know pigeon Muslim speak kinds of messages. You you said it's as if they're trying to frame a Native American by scribbling "white men in heap big trouble." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Uh, you you die fast. You betcha. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you, you, again, you can't make this stuff up. And how about Mohammed Atta and uh, the drama queen? You know, this guy who's such a smooth operator that he's able to sneak into America with all these hijackers and mount this incredible operation that has, destroys three skyscrapers with two planes and, you mm-hmm. know, does damage to the Pentagon, America's most heavily defended building and all of this stuff. You know, wow, what a, what a covert operative he is. It turns out he's this drama queen who's running around staging these scenes where he's yep. yammering about bin Laden and doing insane things right in front of government officials. And <laughs> That's right. It's he unbelievable. He threatens to cut the throat of a U.S. government official. This is months before 9-11. He uh, gets pulled over by the cops and, uh, for driving without a license and then fails to show up. Um, you know, in court, uh, he gets bitten by a dog and the cops get called. He visits these crop duster locations and annoys the uh, the guys there so much that they begin uh, contacting the cops. You know, it goes on and on. He 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 abandons a, a plane he's training to he's supposed to fly on the runway, uh, and just walks away. I mean, and I mean, and on and on. So yeah, that's I call it drama queen. I just think everybody understands what that means. This is a guy who's making all these grand gestures and getting angry and making threats and making mistakes and we're supposed to believe that uh, at the same time we're supposed to believe as you say that this guy pulled off you know the biggest crime you could say in American history on American soil effectively with his you know colleagues let's talk and, about that uh, crop duster angle a little bit because that's that's fascinating Ada stages numerous inc- incidents in which he essentially announces, hi, I'm an al-Qaeda terrorist working for bin Laden, and right. I need to get my hands on a crop duster so I can drop uh, anthrax or another biological weapon on Washington, D.C. Uh, right. He does this over and over while he's supposedly on a secret mission before 9-11. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's what he does. And not only does he say, I want a crop duster, he says, I, you know, um, I have this engineering training. Uh, so, you know, I want to actually uh, get a government loan. Something like six hundred fifty thousand dollars, which he expects to walk out of the office with, you know, this money in his pocket. I want a government loan so that I can build a plane and modify it to become the mother of all crop dusters. So the mother will, of all crop dusters. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it will hold so much uh, material. He doesn't say what it is in it uh, in this big tank that. I won't have to do what most crop dusters do. They, they have to land, you know. And, and, <laughs> <laughs> and then he sees he sees an aerial photo of Washington D.C. Uh, behind the desk of this woman he's demanding the loan from. <laughs> I must have that photo. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I will not leave this office until I have this photo and I have the cash in hand. <laughs> That's right. He begins throwing cash on the desk. He points out the Pentagon. 
he says in one of the accounts, which I didn't I didn't quote this one in in my book, but in one of the accounts of this uh, interview with Janelle Bryant, he says, "How would you like it if somebody came <laughs> and destroyed your buildings from the air, <laughs> and so on and so forth?" So, in other words, yeah, Muhammad Atta seeks alone. I think is what I call that particular tale, and and it's it's one of the most grotesque. I mean, we have Muhammad Atta. Um, visits Prague, and we have, you know, Muhammad Atta gets bitten by a dog, and we have all these tales, but what Muhammad Atta seeks alone is really the most absurd. At one point in the book, I had the whole thing uh, in an appendix to the book, but I thought, no, it's okay, I'll just give the link. People can go and look at it by themselves, and the whole thing is reported in detail by ABC News. Uh, same people and same reporter that falsely claimed that there was bentonite in the anthrax, which is a substance only Iraq used to weaponize its anthrax. Um, so, uh, you know, again, ABC News being allowing itself to be used uh, in, in the most blatant way to push these false stories directly implicated in the whole thing. And it's kind of interesting, isn't it, how... It looks like 9-11 anthrax was set up by neocons who were planning this, you know, destroy seven countries in five years plan that right. Clark referred to. And they were doing this with their double perpetrator hypothesis, that is, try to blame Iraq and al-Qaeda. But it yeah. seems that something went wrong with this, both with regard to the anthrax specifically, where they ended up not even being able to pin it on either al-Qaeda or Iraq because right. it was so heavily weaponized, so in using such advanced techniques that they couldn't blame al-Qaeda, and then yeah. there was also no evidence for Iraq. But with 9-11, it kind of, you know, the 9-11 aspect, it kind of worked the same way, that they're trying to blame the double perpetrators, al-Qaeda and Iraq, but then they end up kind of, Iraq sort of falls out of it. They kept trying, they got their That's war right. in Iraq, but they That's couldn't right. plausibly blame Iraq. That's right. Yeah. No, I, I think you're absolutely right on several points here. First of all, in calling this the 9-11 anthrax attacks, um, and I guess when we write it, we'd have a hyphen in there. I was thinking about that the other day and thinking maybe, we, maybe we're going to have to push fairly hard in our movement to get people to get us using that expression you know, the 9-11 anthrax attacks to, in other words, accept that this was one operation. Because once you see that it's one operation, and once you see how radically the anthrax operation fell apart to the point where the FBI and Department of Homeland Security admit that, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Iraq and al-Qaeda were framed. It came from within the U.S. military community. They, they don't want to go too far with that, but, but the base, that basic fact they admit once you see that, and once you see that's part of the same operation as 9-11, then, of course, you can't protect the 9-11 operation anymore. And that's what they've been trying to do. That's what the FBI and other agencies have been trying to do for years. They've been first, so, so here's how it goes, just so I get a chance to say this. While they're taking place, the anthrax attacks, a major attempt is being made by, let's call them for now, the neocons to say that this was a one-two punch by extremist Muslims. First they do 9-11, and then before people have a chance to recover properly, they hit them with anthrax. So the two are connected, and these connections, considerable effort is made 
to show us the connections. And as October goes on, uh, begins in September, but especially October 2001, these connections are being gradually revealed to the newspaper. Oh, look, the hijackers who did 9-11 lived in the, you know, these particular locations, which were also centers of the anthrax attack. And, oh, look at this interesting connection. Now, now they want us to be coincidence theorists, or rather conspiracy theorists, rather than coincidence theorists. Yeah, exactly. At that point, everyone is supposed to have pattern recognition ability. They can see, for example, that if the same real estate agent um, was a real estate agent for two of the 9-11 hijackers, and at the same time for the first person to die from anthrax, Robert Stevens, holy shit. Um, you can cut that out. If you need to. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, my gosh, what is that? That can't be coincidence. And, and of course, they don't want us to think it's coincidence. The main people pushing this want people to have pattern recognition ability. They want them to see that 9-11 and anthrax are connected. They want it to be a one-two punch. One of, the, one of the most extreme examples of this campaign to make us believe that 9-11 and anthrax were both done by the same double perpetrator, al-Qaeda and Iraq, yeah. is this bizarre fake story that the neocons apparently planted in the New York Times claiming that one of the bodies of the alleged hijackers from Flight 93 uh, had a black leg lesion. <laughs> I mean, where do they come up with this stuff? Yeah, actually, I mean, nobody even proved. Nobody's ever found the plane or the bodies from Flight 93. They told us it went into a little 15-foot diameter hole in the ground. They claim that somehow the, enough of the bodies were excavated to do DNA testing on everybody except for the alleged hijackers. Not one shred of uh, you know, uh, DNA evidence that has even been claimed that they got from any of the hijackers. But they claim they got pieces of the passengers' bodies, yet there's no evidence whatsoever that any excavation of this plane ever happened. Right. So what's this black leg lesion on a hijacker well, from Flight 93? Well, let me, let me, let me correct something there, uh, although um, it may be you're right, but I think those are two separate uh, attempts to connect. Uh, first of all, you're right. On the one hand, they do claim at one point that anthrax is detected in the remnants of 93, and for all the reasons you point out, that's kind of hilarious. Um, and uh, and on the other hand, as what I see, but but I think the black lesion is a separate story. Okay. So gotcha. the black lesion is that uh, there are a couple of of the hijackers. I forget which ones now who go to the doctor. Oh yeah, you're them, you're right, you're right. Yeah, yeah. and one yeah. of them has this really prominent black lesion on his leg, and the doctor doesn't know what it is. He prescribes an antibiotic or something, and off they go. And it's later that and several doctors, including those um, scientists who are, you know, colluding with this dark winter thing, they come out and say, aha, that was cutaneous anthrax. That's exactly what cutaneous anthrax looks like. It's a black scab. That's what anthrax means. It means coal because the scab looks really black. And they say, my God, that's an example of where one of the hijackers had anthrax before 9-11 because, why? Because they were working with anthrax, preparing it. So what you've given as one incident is actually two separate incidents, both of which were originally designed, clearly, to make us think the same people did 9-11 and the anthrax attacks. So what might
my book is trying to do, just to finish this argument, is to remind people of those connections because the FBI has spent years now burying those connections because, of course, what once looked like a good idea, let's show people they were connected, became a very bad idea as soon as the anthrax operation fell apart. As soon as it became clear it was a domestic operation, you had to, you had to make it clear it had nothing to do with 9-11. 9-11 was real extremist Muslims killing Americans. The anthrax attacks were fake extremist Muslims killing Americans. No <laughs> connection, keep that folks. straight. <laughs> yeah, nothing to see here, folks. Just please keep walking. Uh -huh. And, yeah, so, so I really try in the book to say, no, it, it really was a one-two punch by the same perpetrators. They just weren't extreme, extremist Muslims. That's all. They were neocons. And, and that's left us in this interesting position where since the anthrax case fell apart, and it, it really has become the weak link of the 9-11 anthrax operation. Right, right. And uh, I, I listened to the show you did with Barry Kissin the other day, and you said at one point that, um, that the anthrax attacks might be the thread, uh, that if we pull on it, the fabric will, will come undone. That's exactly why I wrote the book, that we have this if you like, woven fabric called the global war on terror. And we could start picking it apart at just about anywhere. We could go to 9-11. We could go to Boston Marathon. We could go to the London bombings. We could go to the underwear bomber. And they're all worth looking at. They're all worth studying. But I thought to myself, you know what? I think maybe the anthrax attacks are the thread that I want to pull on here. And, and when I decided to do that initially, I hadn't done much research, and I didn't know exactly what I'd find. So it was an experiment. I said, let's, let's look into it and see, because this might be the one. Once we begin taking this apart, the whole thing will come undone. And um, whether or not that you know, proves to be the case, I don't know. But that's what I'm trying to do here. Well, I think one of the reasons that it just might work, at least in the medium term, if not the long term, is... Yeah that Congress was targeted in such an over-the-top way. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and I think that Congress is one of those institutions that could uh, blow this thing wide open if they, you know, maybe not while the bad guys are still totally in control, but at some point down the line, Congress might wake up and say, wait a minute, what's this business of apparently people in our own government with an allegiance to a foreign government uh, hitting us with biological weapons, shutting down the Congress, overthrowing democracy, you know, maybe we need to go back and uh, do something about this. Well, I mean, that would be an ideal scenario. I don't know enough about who's in Congress and who has a, enough spine to do this and whether they would ever, ever be willing even to read the book uh, that I've written. I mean, we have a wonderful thing uh, on video. You can find it on YouTube of uh, Patrick Leahy was, after all, one of the targets of the anthrax attacks, saying when when the Bruce Ivan solution, you know, was being proposed by the FBI, he said he says quite angrily, "I do not believe for one moment that this is the only man um, who is responsible for this. I believe there are others, and I believe they could be charged with murder." And um, and I think to myself, okay, okay, hopefully he still has that view. Um, and is it possible to reach people like him? 
with this kind of material. Uh, I don't know. Well, I've, I've given Russ Feingold, the former senator from Wisconsin, who was the only senator to vote against the Patriot Act, yeah. copies of two of David Ray Griffin's books. Actually, I think it was his first two books, New Pearl Harbor and the 9-11 Commission, uh, Emissions and Distortions. Right. And uh, he accepted it uh, gracefully and mm-hmm. uh, got a thank you letter saying that he, w- he was not allowed to personally accept books, but he would put them in the library he has at his office for the uh, edification of the public. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. So I hope uh, hope somebody can get him a copy of this one for his library too. Yeah, well, because, he's retired because, now. Okay. Well, he was he was kind of a hero on this one. Um, you know, you it's know, interesting. To, you know, he he and Wellstone were the two biggest heroes, and, it's, and they're both Jewish. You know, a lot of people, yeah. you know, say, well, the neocons did this largely for Israel, and start making it into a ethnic thing, which it, right. it isn't precisely. You know, it's it's no, a, no, it's it a philosophical like thing. Yeah, I don't I don't use the term Jew or Judaism or Jewish or anything. Even though an awful lot of Jewish names popping up in the bad guys that you mentioned. Well, sure, sure. Um, you know, Jeff Stein and Richard Cohen and so on and so forth. I, you know, a part of me couldn't care less. You know, they could all be named, you know, uh, Rory. Or <laughs> they could have been named by the same names as my ancestors, you know, which are um, Duncan McQueen and Alexander Chisholm and all these, you know, I don't care. Let them be Scottish. Let them be English. Let them be whatever. I don't care. Mm-hmm. It's not my point. Uh, I, I don't think this is about ethnicity. I don't think it's about religion. Um, well, it partly is, Graham. I mean, part, part of the problem is that there are these psycho neocons who are, you know, traumatized by the Holocaust and, you know, ready to go the whole nine yards to do anything for right. Israel. Um, yeah. But then there, there are plenty of Jewish people like Wellstone and Feingold who are honorable, decent people who are doing their job for uh, for America as well. So it's, well, it's a relevant I, I, factor. We just have to be honest about it and, and comprehensive about it when we talk about it that way. Well, I agree with that, certainly. Um, my point is that the category that I found useful was neoconservative. You know, it was not, mm-hmm. the category was not Jewish. I mean, when we look at, you know, um, a term like Jew, and Judaism, um, different terms, but obviously related, we find this is contested territory. And it's a fascinating moment in history when um, there's a struggle uh, within, broadly speaking, that community worldwide as to what it's going to mean to be a Jew and what Judaism is and what Israel is and all these things. And so, for example, in Canada, I don't remember what it's called in the U.S., uh, Jewish Voices for Peace or something. Yeah. Uh, in Canada, there's a, a group called Independent Jewish Voices, which is extremely critical of Israel. And, uh, and it's often made fun of by more mainstream Jewish community. But I, as you know, it's small and so on. But it's actually really significant, in my opinion. Yeah, and, it's going mainstream here in the U.S., too. Yeah, it has. It, these are often made, you know, it's a whole generation of, you know, young Jews in North America that are becoming, um, or you know, I was going to say they're becoming disillusioned with Israel. I'm not sure they ever were um, fastened on Israel the way their parents and grandparents were. Uh, were. I mean, they just don't accept that uh that Israel should be allowed to do whatever it wants, and, and somehow if it isn't given free reign to break every rule in human existence, then somehow Jews everywhere are under threat. They don't believe that, and, and they're right. They're right to see that 
it's not that way at all. That in fact, you know, Jews are under threat to a large extent, to the extent that Israel is going on this incredible rampage, and that to the extent to which the Zionists in power in Israel have the power to define what it means to be a Jew. And, and uh, so this is contested territory. Um, I remember seeing a good speech by an Orthodox Jewish rabbi not long ago in which he says, we've been subjected to identity theft. He said, imagine it as somebody breaking into your house, taking your wallet, your credit cards and everything, and then claiming that he's you. You know, the real Kevin Barrett is now the thief. You know, the other one's not the Kevin Barrett. He said, that's what's happened to us. He said, I know what Judaism means. I know what it means to be a Jew and how long our tradition, our religion has lasted and why it's lasted so long and what our values are. I have a pretty good idea of that. And I can tell you it's not the same as Zionism. and It's not the same as what the state of Israel is doing right now. Our identity is being stolen and we're not happy about it. <clears throat> so both conservative and, if you like, young progressive Jews in North America are, are getting upset about this. They're, they're contesting the identity. And, of course, they're quite right that many of the leading Zionists never were religious Jews. I mean, they had no, no interest, in, in, for the most part, in the religion. And uh, so, of course, this, this contestation, this, this contest about what it means to be this or that is going on in other religious communities as well. I'm sure it's going mm -hmm. on in Islam. You would know more about that than I. Mm -hmm. It's going on in Buddhism. You have you know, fascist Buddhist monks in Burma um, promoting killing. Well, sorry, the whole Buddhist community is not going to accept that. Um, there's a movement, socially engaged Buddhists, that speaks out against it. You have the same thing in Hinduism. To me, this is a good thing. The fact that people in these communities are standing up and saying, we challenge your definition of what it means to be a Buddhist or a Jew or a Muslim. We challenge it publicly. We say we, we reject your interpretation. I think this is so important. You know, it's so easy for, let's say, a Christian or a Muslim to criticize Jews as not having this or that interpreted. But when within the Jewish community, that um, that questioning goes on and that challenge takes place. It's a whole different dynamic. Um, sorry, I know this is this may seem like a long rant. They went on. No, I think, I think that's a great point and very timely. And, you know, we just had the New York Times publish its our, this op-ed, "The End of Liberal Zionism." Uh huh. And uh, you know, there have been all kinds of you know people like Max Blumenthal, who very very well connected young American Jew, just published the book Goliath. Uh, yeah. Really no, he's Israel. great. Yeah. I just attended a talk he gave in my own town here, and he's he's a really good representative of that younger Jewish community in North America. Well, I, I hope uh, they'll take up this 9-11 anthrax thing, you know, because that that would be the best way to have it broken wide open. You know, yeah. if, if you know if it if it ends up being suppressed to the point that people re so angry uh, at Israel, um, they get angry at Jews too, end up being the ones who who you know, stage a coup d'etat or, or, you know, have riots or whatever. And it's getting close to that point in France, from what I hear. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, that has a lot of potential downsides. Uh, you know, if we had more, you know, sort of brave Jews like, like Wellstone and Feingold actually standing up, doing something about 9-11, I really think that, would, and the larger issue of Zionism, you know, this whole problem could get solved relatively peacefully. And, and yeah, no, I'm, complete, I'm completely behind that. I, uh, 
actually when I gave a talk on 9-11 in New York some years ago, and I apparently arrived just after you had given your talk, so that's why we never met. Um, this was at uh, church. Um, oh, oh yeah, yeah, the the uh, the church in the Bowery. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, what was my point? Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, sorry, I missed meeting you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was too bad, but I'm trying to remember what my point was there. Oh, yes, 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 yes. One of the people, I met a lot of fascinating people at that conference because I hung around for a few days in Manhattan. And one of them was um, an older Jewish woman um, from New York who was an artist. And she took a couple of the senator, you know, a couple of big art museums in New York and um, art galleries and gave us a guided tour. But she was at the 9-11 conference. She's completely on board with that. And she said she said to me at one point, as a Jew, I'm really worried um, <clears throat> because <clears throat> look what they did to us in World War II <clears throat> when we had done nothing to to merit any kind of bad stuff. And now, now she said, I'm sure you've looked at the list of who the leading neocons are and how many of them are Jewish. And when it becomes clear what they've done, you know, that they were involved in 9-11 and they're involved in all kinds of lies and deception, she said, I'm very worried about what may come down on the heads of my community. I don't blame her. And no. that's what Sandra Lubarsky also talks about a bit in her essay in the book I co-edited, 9-11 in the American Empire, Volume 2. And, you know, yeah. hats off to her for having the courage to come right out and say that. Well, you know, yeah. we're about at the end of the interview, Graham. Um, okay. Give us a, do you have a website where people should go to get the book, read about it? Well, if they uh, look up Clarity Press, just Google Clarity Press, <clears throat> And then you'll find the book. Uh, at the moment, it's listed under forthcoming, but it's going to be um, officially published very shortly. And uh, in any case, you'll find it. You click on that, and you'll get um, a web page dedicated to the book. It will give a synopsis of it. It will give some of the reviews by other people, and it will give you a button whereby you can press it and buy the book. All right. Clarity Press putting out some of the very best books available today, including this fantastic new book on the Anthrax case. Thank you, uh, Graham McQueen. I appreciate it. I'll link all that stuff at the truthjihad.com radio website. Just go to truthjihad.com, click on the radio link, and you'll get there. Uh, keep up the fantastic work, and I look forward to another conversation with you. Thank you very much. They sentenced me to 20 years of boredom For trying to change the system from within I'm coming now, I'm coming to reward them First, we take Manhattan Then we take Berlin I'm guided by a signal in the heavens I'm guided by this birthmark on my skin I'm guided by the beauty of our weapons.